When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The only introduction William Shatner needs is a standing ovation. He's an absolute legend. A man who has worked as an actor, director, producer, recording artist in just about every genre of film, TV, books, and records. When you get to know him a bit, you learn his perspectives on life, family, and work are as clear as if he was seeing Earth from a rocket in space, which, of course, he has. I do not think the conversation between us will disappoint. Take a listen. Hello. Hi, Bill. Hi, Gates. How are you? I'm good, and I'm excited to talk with you. Good. Well, let's let's just get in there, okay? Sounds good to me. I just want to first of all congratulate you on your new album called Bill and also your latest book called Boldly Go that is with Joshua Brandon and you. Wonderful. Really congratulations. I, I, I enjoyed them very much and I have lots of questions. So growing up in Montreal there was a lot of anti-Semitism there. Did you feel it growing up as a kid? Oh, yeah. Sure. I Went to school and, and uh, had to fight my way out day after day. Yeah. That's <laughs> horrible. Yeah. That, that's horrible. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that you and your father, he, he was very important to you. Talk, can you talk just a little bit about that? I, I know I've read in the books, he was a tailor. He worked very hard and he traveled a lot. When did he start traveling so much? Were you really little? He probably started traveling uh, long before I was born. He was a salesman more than a tailor. He sold men's clothing, and then okay. somewhere along the line, he uh, started his own business and had a, a modest little uh, factory where he made uh, men's clothing. And he had a couple of companies over the years. One was Comfort Clothing, and then the last one he had was Admiration Clothing. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Now, where did his family, like, what, where did he immigrate from? Was he, was he the immigrant or was it his grandfather? Uh, he immigrated uh, when he was 14 from Austria, I believe, although the borders were changing a lot, so it was hard to know. The Austro-Hungarian Empire at that time was changing, was being destroyed, actually. Absolutely, yeah. And did, when did he meet your mother? Well, he met my mother, who was born in Montreal, uh, when she was probably her early 20s, maybe her late teens. She married early. Uh, she was a lovely young lady, and he was, from pictures I've seen, uh, good-looking, strong. Uh, you know, I, he his education, there's a word for self-educated uh, that I keep reading and I keep looking up. 
um, and I don't remember it, but he was self-educated a great mm -hmm. deal. He read a lot of books and autodidactic. Yeah. Was your mother um, someone who had had the opportunity of going to school or not? My mother uh, was of the ilk of those days where, because uh, her, her, my mother's father had made a little money on in a, a store of uh, fur store, I think. Um, so she was not pressed by poverty. Okay. She was like upper middle class home, and she had um, a brother and a, and a, and a sister. Uh, and I think my mother was the middle one. And uh, so she did not, she graduated high school and then did um, various odd things, then got married. Right. Now, you have two siblings and they're both still alive. Is that correct? Yes. I have a younger sister and an older sister. And so I, I laughed out loud when I read what you said at the funeral of your father that. <laughs> about the pine casket <laughs> and and she said was it used uh about just how thrifty he was that really was hilarious because i had a father very similar to that <laughs> when he was in his 80s and had als and i'm going there twice a month my brother and i alternating trying to take care of them he would not let me call a toilet repairman because it was going to be 40 bucks instead of the guy who does it for free who can do it a week from now. And I'm like, I need to use that toilet, Dad. <laughs> so yeah, those are examples. Uh, my father's statement uh, that I recollect was spend the money on the living. Well, that's that's very wise. That's great. Yeah. Well, I get buried in an ornate coffin when it's put in the ground. And I totally agree. I, on the other hand, my arrangements have been made to uh, have my ashes put into the ground and a tree put on top of that. That's so beautiful. That I will have a tree. And I wrote a song, um, which is part of the performance I did at Kennedy Center. I did a, a concert at Kennedy Center on th songs that I wrote with the uh, gentleman by the name of Robert Cherno. Uh, and one of them was, I Want to Be a Tree. But that's not the Bill album. No, there's another album okay. uh, subsequent to Bill. Okay. Uh, that has not a name yet. Uh, the London Symphony Orchestra has picked it up, and I don't know quite what we'll call it. Live at Kennedy Center is probably. Well, that's fantastic because you know what? What to me was so different from the earlier albums. First of all, the the music was extremely amazing on Bill. All of it was original, right? Right. I think I felt it was much more personal. That's the well, way I read it. I felt it. All the songs on Bill and all the songs that I uh, did and recorded at Kennedy Center <clears throat> are personal songs based on events in my life. Right. And Robert and I fashioned, he mostly the words, I would do the events. I loved Tuffy. Exactly. So Tuffy was what they called me in grade school because I was fighting all the time because I was uh, being assailed because I was Jewish. And your siblings had the same problems or was it? Well, they're, they're girls and I, I don't think, I've never heard them discuss being 
being beaten up or are you close with them well yes and no uh my younger sister's 11 years younger than i so that by the time she came around to be conscious you know when she's seven eight i'm now a teenager going to college or something and so i didn't see much of her until later in life and my older sister is three years older than i and she did the same thing as our mother she got married very early on she was high school and did something you know worked various things and then got married what was your favorite toy when you were a child favorite toy never been asked that well I remember my father buying me a bicycle and I remember the truck delivered it we took it off the truck and as we turned it right side up the fender cut my hand and I've got a scar here of my bike and every so often I look at my bike scar <laughs> Well, I remember my father put my bike together, and it it was a fender, and he cut his hand horribly. That, <laughs> the that, night. That's exactly it. Yeah. So you said in one book, unless I've misread it, that your mother offended you a few times. Now, did you? is that what you meant? And what are you talking about? It went over my head. I'm like, okay, I want to know. Well, uh, I remember... You know, it's such a it's such a small incident, but indicative of a child's mind. So I must have been about six, and I asked the question that all children ask of their parents: uh, "Do you love me more than you love Daddy?" Oh, okay. And she said, "No, I love Daddy more because he gives me things." Oh, that's right. I do remember. And I, I and I remember that. Wow. I, somehow, of all the things you you know, you live a lifetime and forget it must have been like a doorbell ringing a, a chimes of some kind rang a bell that i've never forgotten that sentence there are little things like you know maybe your child's misbehaving and then you know they break something and then they say but do you love me and if if because your own anger clouds you for that moment you can really do something that can damage that child and you don't mean to even no it's you know, I'm sure she was joking. Or, exactly, or, but you took it seriously. Mark. You took it well, seriously. You, well, you, you, you're dealing with a child's mind. And you've exactly. You've got to be aware that that child's mind is open to so many things, to language, to principles, to love, and to being hurt, and hurt in such a way that it can be searing to the point where you never forget it. I mean, I have times in my life when I... Um, was carrying something for my mother and she was struggling with my brother and I and she had been doing something for us. It was an art show. It was late at night. We didn't have, we were walking back from this thing and I, I was tired and I put down the, the bundle she gave me and I broke this coffee pot that she had saved and saved to get. Oh. And so I remember the fact that she was so upset. I remember going to her later that night and saying, do you still love me? Right. And to her credit, she was like, of course, darling, you're much more important than a coffee pot. And so well, at that moment, I'll bet you if you had said that, well, you just, yeah, you just exactly you know, she, she, this favorite thing of her. She's only a human being. That's right. And mothers can snap 
and then regret. And I'm sure all the things we're talking about, uh, they did. It's just so important for parents to remember and see how sensitive children can be on that. Yes, but you know, I'm a parent of three girls and and two dogs, and I lost my temper with the dogs the other day. <laughs> I wait a minute, God, because dogs, children, and dogs need an element of discipline. You just you can't let them run riot. My dogs were running riot, and so. I punched one in the shoulder, you know, they're big, they're 75, hundred pound dogs and two of the two major Dobermans. So you've got to be the, the pack leader. So I punched one in the shoulder and that scared them both. And they were, and I said, no, and come here and lie down. And, you know, I've never uh, hurt them uh, or any dog over the many years I've, I've had dogs, but there's an element of discipline that the pack leader would do to any anything in the bank. And children, as I said, there's a certain discipline you, you I think you should maintain. I, it's just an interesting thing to realize both how they'll push the limit as long as they can, just like a puppy, and then they'll also, you know, be so sensitive. Part of my bringing up my kids was, I guess, it was done to me. A finger in the ribs is really good. <laughs> it's called in in, in in sort of the slang of the of a Jewish family. It's a potch. I give him a potch. They're like, oh God! Well, then get going. You know? <laughs> um, I was struck when I read about crossing the bridge when you were decided to leave home. You're in your car. You're used car that you bought and you're crossing the bridge and there was a big massive 16 wheeler that came by and almost blew you off and uh just for the listeners who haven't read the book can you just describe that moment well that, that's a that's a song oh this is a song uh, okay so called uh the bridge and i likened it uh, so this 18 wheeler had two more wheels than you think uh uh came at me and, and i'm crossing a bridge probably over the St. Lawrence River on my way. I've left home and I'm on my way to seek my fortune as an actor in Toronto, the New York of uh, Canada. And I'm filled with the, the, the complex feelings of leaving home and going away for the first time alone. And so I'm crossing the bridge. And after that experience with the 18-wheeler, I almost blew me out of the, off the bridge in my little used car. We wrote this song whereby we're always crossing a bridge and we're always meeting an 18 wheeler. And so crossing the bridge is part of our lifespan span, the life of the bridge span. It's part of our journey where we're always taking a chance. We should be always taking a chance and we're always threatened by circumstances and we generally yeah, which is, uh, recover, and you know, it's far more dramatic than we think. But the song is about growing up. Right. But you also wrote, I think it was in also the book, because I, I do know the song, The Bridge. And I was struck by it because you said you almost, you felt like you almost blew off the bridge. You almost died. You felt like I could have died. Okay. And that you thought, if I died now, it, it would only be my parents who would mourn me. I want to make a mark in the world. 
Well, I didn't think of making a mark, but it struck me because I had all what meager belongings I had in the back seat of this little two-seater car. Uh, it struck me that you can live and die and, and be innocuous. Yeah. So leaving home growing up, I'm 22 and I'm driving along the highway and I passed this 18-wheeler. And um, as I went past, he made huge honking thing to scare me and then made lewd gestures. And I oh. swerved because, I mean, it really, it scared the bejesus out of me. You know, it was like a loud honk. And you know how that is. You're in your zone. And of course, he made this rude gesture. So I decided to make a rude gesture back. And this guy comes like 90 miles an hour and he pulls, passes me and pulls right in and breaks. He was trying to kill me, actually. And my car spun. I spun around about five or six times. No one else was on the road or I probably would have crashed. And it really affected me because I saw how a small thing can really become life and death. It was amazing that someone could just arbitrarily it was insane. Want to damage it's someone else insane, so much. Insane human being. Yeah, it really was crazy. But so I, I've always since then been afraid of passing 18 wheelers. Seriously, I still feel a nerve, you know, happening yeah, when I, I when I pass that. them. Crazy. There's, there's always the jeopardy of action and there's always the jeopardy of what, what if I do it? And we're all innocuous. We're all we're all buried and People say, well, what's your legacy? And the legacy is do a good deed because there's no such thing as a legacy. Everybody disappears. Here, here. Yes. Into the dust of history. Yep. Which gets, of course, to your journey into space. But I want to get to that later. I, I, you know, when I was um, 22, I had come back from studying in Paris. Um, it had been a really lonely time in my what life. Did you study? I studied theater. I got a full scholarship to do graduate work over there. And, um, I worked with this in, man in France. In, Did you say France? In France, in Paris. And and with, with whom did you study? A, a man named Jacques Lecoq, and he now all of his techniques are taught in every major theater school in the United States and and England and Europe. How do you learn to act? Oh gosh! Just give, uh, give me many a ways. I observation is one of the first things, and uh, you know, being aware of rhythm. Uh, texture, color, sound. Um, music is such a fabulous language. It's very important. I think you need to listen and observe. We used to spend hours going down to train stations and hospitals and watching, just observing people in waiting rooms. How do people and wait? How did you, when you came back to the school, how did you use that? Well, it was a combination of physical techniques creating obstacles, physical action, using the breath, voice, and various various other techniques, body techniques, as opposed to, say, Stella Adler work, which was heavy text analysis, uh, sense memory work. So I felt I got both styles of acting, the very physical going from the outside in and the more psychological from the inside out. And with both of them, you're creating a story with a beginning, middle, and end. But he really 
opened, we studied, for example, masks. And this was why, you know, you have a song called Masks. And it's interesting because there are several ways you can use masks. They can be a way to hide or a way to transform because all the major cultures in the world had masks in, you know, when they started. And the magic was if the wearer moves the mask in such a way that this fixed expression, that we have seen it as a fixed expression, you could swear it changed expression and moved. And it seems like magic. Well, it does. Like This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Which is it in a different way. Yes. In the mind of the viewer, the face changed, but in actual reality, the expression is fixed. Whereas in your song, Masks, you're talking figuratively about the masks of different personas that we wear to navigate the world. See, that's fascinating. I did, uh, at Stratford, I did uh, a uh, a play, Oedipus. Oh. I did uh, the Greek play. Uh, yes, tragedy. I know it well. I know it well. And the chorus uh, was a group of actors, amongst which I was one, who wore a blanket, a, lo- a robe covering us from neck to uh, to toe, and a mask. And then we would all say the, the choral, chorus words, but have attitudes. Right. It was uh, really well re- received. I have seen photographs of that production of really? Sir Tyrone. Yes. Sir Tyrone Guthrie. I met him, by the way, when I was like 17, and he blew my mind. He, he was... Please. Let me, let me ask you, first of all, uh, uh, itinerary question. Did you learn it in French? Were you studying it in yes, French? Yes, yes. Do you speak French fluidly, do, fluently, do you? I do, but I didn't at the time. I, I had studied it in school, but that was I was a far cry from doing it. And what was really funny is I, I first got there and I was taking tutoring lessons from the cheapest place I could find. And it was this woman who was in her 60s. And then when I was going to the school, we had to improvise in French. One of the guys afterwards said, God, what is with it with you? You you, you talk like you're a 60-year-old woman. <laughs> and so I realized that she was teaching me. Well, she, I was learning her very old-fashioned, more Victorian-y thing. So, so then I, I realized I need to learn how to improvise like someone my own age. That's funny. And, and let me ask you another question. I know you, you want to ask me questions, but uh, this trading of information. I'm sure is interesting. What have you used this extraordinary amount of information that you have? Have you used it as a as an actress and as a, a working in the theater? Oh, in the theater, absolutely. Um, I did it production of Cloud Nine, and it was uh, in you directed the, it. Uh, no, I I was in the Tommy Toon production. Carol Churchill mm-hmm. cast me. I was in a replacement cast, and I did the triple role. So I was playing three different characters, and the movement work was so much fun to do. It was great. Um, I 
I love all of it. I mean, we did buffoon. We studied buffoon and clown and all of that. And I've used it a great deal in my directing because one of the things, and you would really like this, one of the things that Lecoq developed was, especially in Greek tragedy, he's saying that the stage is on a pivot. And I'm making a T with my hands to those who can't see it. And when the hero comes in, he, it, it tips the stage. And so something has to balance it. And it's, it's trying to find all those people on stage and trying to balance it. And, and you know, when sometimes you can't balance it. And it's a very interesting thing, both intellectually and physically. So we used to have to improvise trying to say lines and also being aware of our space and our relationship to the audience. Like, I have to get my rhythm of walking for a character and the kinds of footwear I have. It's very important to me. Um, mm. So that's just one thing. But back to you, Bill. Um, so I loved when you were talking about doing your uh, Kennedy Center performance, how you said it was the ultimate feeling of connection. Connection, you know, to the universe, really. Uh, when you feel something's bigger than you, it's such a wonderful, powerful experience. And I think you capture that talking about going to space. You capture that when you talk about doing the music. Um, when you feel so connected to an audience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I can. And perhaps more than anybody in our, our orbit, I've been out in front of people mostly uh, of late in the last several years, ad-libbing, doing a spontaneous performance for more than an hour in which, like we're talking now, but I would uh, get a question and, and then manufacture a story or an instant or talk to them and find it. And I have been in control of an audience for an hour or more, not knowing what the next word was going to be. And I've done it now for years, many, many times. I can't imagine that there's anybody else around that has done it more than I have as a, as a means of entertainment, a means of earning a living. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in front of an audience and I know the words, I'm, I'm in control. Now, in the performance at Kennedy Center, there were seven songs that we had written a lot of dialogue, a lot of words that I didn't want to have to drill and take a chance on making a mistake because I had 70 piece orchestra behind me. And what if you fumble and, 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 and you go like that, it's so yeah. apparent. So I asked them to have it on a television screen. So they put it on a screen way in the back. Now it's a huge house. It's a 3,000 uh, seat house. Now look back, I can barely make it out. And the font is so big, there's almost one word in the screen. <laughs> Not anywhere near the mouth, because I would sometimes talk like that, and then stop and let the rhythm go. So I said, I, I need it closer. And they said, well, we can put two television sets right there and there. So I had teleprompter there and a teleprompter there. Then uh, Ben Folds, who had invited me, who was the artistic director, invited me to do this entertainment. Um, was we were talking, and he said, "You know, 
the 70 piece orchestra, you get lost. I mean, even I, as a pianist, and studied and he plays at concerts and stuff like that. So sometimes it's like, uh, I don't know where I am. I'm just playing and I'm hoping for the best. Right. If it's just orchestration, boom, bring, 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 and you go, now where the hell am I? Well, and counting is really difficult. So I, th I said, now what am I going to do? Because I had rehearsed and rehearsed. I had it on my phone, the, the, uh, the synthesized version of the orchestra. Right. Uh, but there was no melodic, oh, say, can you see, wasn't there. It was no melodic line that I could attach to. Bum, and there'd be bells occasionally. Oh, I got to get to the bells by this. But there was no, so I said, what am I going to do? So the guy who wrote the orchestrations for 70 pieces said, well, uh, the, we, they can put me on a teleprompter. So I'd have to look it up. I said, can you sit in a front row seat? He said, I can. Right. So he sat That's in fabulous. a front row seat. And he's going faster or he's going slower. Fabulous. Like right down there. And I'm looking at the words there, which I can get away from because I knew most of the words. So I'm dealing with all this. I don't have to worry about where I am. I don't have to worry about the words. Great. All I have to do is control the audience. Right. And when I came out and they applauded and I said, music is everywhere. Silence in the audience. I had them from that moment on. And for the next hour, they were yelling and screaming. And finally, at this song called So Fragile, So Blue, which was about my journey into space. And the song is about how, well, what can we do is a repeating phrase, which not only is there an album of the, of the performance and a, and a, a visual, uh, a, a sort of a television show, but we're going to make a music video of So Fragile, So Blue, which in my fantasy will become the anthem like we are the world of what can we do? The phrase, what can we do about global warming? Yeah, about our planet. Is our planet. So my, that's my vision. The thing I'm going to do, my calling is attempting to increase the awareness of how tentative our life on our future Earth. is yeah it's it's really tentative i agree um i know that feeling for me of feeling something's bigger than yourself has happened um sometimes in a performance like there was one performance uh, in shakespeare in the park where i was doing helena and um the winds came up when it was the lovers quarrel scenes and the winds were coming up and and our dresses were being in our faces and everything. And then all of a sudden it became when the lovers go to sleep, it the temperature dropped like 20 degrees or something. It was f amazing. And it was so still. And all the people huddled together in the stands. You could just feel it. And I, I, I think I kind of felt by the end of the performance, it really was that we were in this, this play of Shakespeare with all these people, 2,000 people watching, and it, it was much bigger than any performance. Nature was involved. I mean, um, it was poetical. And they are in the forest. So yeah, it, yeah. It really works. Yeah. I've just thought of a thing. Okay. I haven't spoken about in a long time, an, an, an experience that uh, I think is worthwhile along this subject for your audience. So 
doing a reading of poetry or somewhere, something is something I've done over the years. I'm asked to come to a to an air show, and they said, "Well, what can you do?" And I said, "Well, there's a poem called High Flight, the last line of which is, and touch the face of God." And I said, "I, I, I suppose I could do that." He said, "Well, there's a a guy in a glider, no engine, a, a masterful pilot, who will be uh, towed up to the right height, and then he's going to do all kinds of weird things." And then, and then, and I was talking to the pilot, and then he says, "I'll do the loop, and I'll do the thing, and I come across, and then, and then, the last thing I do is a low uh, altitude, like ten feet off the surface of the of the runway." Can't feel the surface of the run like that. And of course, there's no sound. There's just this vehicle across the thing. So I start the poem. I have no idea where he's going, where I'm going. And I'm saying a line, and then he does something, and I sing another line. And wouldn't you know it, as he comes across the runway, the last line, and touch the face of God. And there's silence. Yeah. It was like a happening that could never happen again because how do you time that exactly out? it's synchronicity but of the universe which is what you say in one of your books I'll, i and i hope the audience will always remember oh that's so brilliant oh bill you know your song black horse whoo that was tough to listen to because of the subject matter tough one to do that's the one tough. about your horse and uh what have i done yeah what have i done um, just using him as a stud horse, and uh, that was brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, powerful. There is a possibility that a lot of our, a lot of our personality and and behavior and desires is in our DNA, that down through the ages, as one grandparent and great-grandparent and way back, when they were doing this, you see it in horses. You can breed wonderful characteristics into a horse by getting the best, the best breed. The, the expression is breed the best of the best and hope for the best. So with some certainty, a, a degree of possibility, if you breed a great stat into a great mare, you're going to get a great baby. Maybe one times out of four, five, three, whatever the statistics are. If you keep breeding the great stat into a great mare, you're going to get a great baby because at some point in time, all the characteristics that you're breeding for meld. I believe, and it's not just me, that that behavior is also part of our DNA, that what we were like a thousand years ago, some trait has rubbed off on us. And some bad traits on horses rub off. They uh, cribbing is uh, they gnaw on the they they suck in air. It's a nervous thing. So you can breed good characters and bad characters. When did you first fall in love with horses? I think that somebody in my DNA was a horseman, loved horses, and that characteristic came down to me. I don't know where it's come from. When I was twelve, I got on a horse and rode a horse as though. I knew how to ride. I didn't know how to ride. I should have come off and fallen on the ground. I didn't. My mother said, where did you learn to ride like that? Hmm. 
It was an, a half hour on a horse and never got on a horse again until I was able to rent horses with some money that I would have made. So 30, 20, 30 years later, I was getting into horses. Interesting. Why? I don't know. Okay. Just, See, I, I have a, I have a, a knack for it. I have a talent for, for well, horses. Yeah, you definitely do. And you have a real... Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Passion and love for it. Um, I, I find that like with the new news scientifically that they've realized that we all have Neanderthal in us as well as, yeah, exactly. you know, um, the uh what we what we thought we had we have homo sapien but we also have neanderthal and the fact i go yeah i think it's really great not to just breed <laughs> sometimes it's really good to just you need, see you who you're outcross. attracted to and what's available <laughs> you need an outcross and, and uh, absolutely neanderthals may have given us a great deal that we don't know about yeah uh, when you so if we hurt someone terribly emotionally, do you think it's fair that they reciprocate in a way that might cause us some sort of either economic or emotional damage? Or do you not think that's fair? Well, uh, it's a strange question. Um, I, it's a philosophical argument more than anything else. It is, it is our nature to say, I'm going to get you. You did me hurt. You hurt me physically. You hurt me. You, you you killed my my child. I'm going to kill you. You hurt my feelings. I'm going to hurt you. What we have long known is that kind of hatred is worse for us, worse for the person thinking of revenge. So revenge is a very awful, awful subject in that it's human nature. I understand it as human nature. You want to, somebody hits you, you're going to hit them back. Turning the other cheek is not part of our natural DNA. It's an assumed characteristic. It sounds like it would be better to turn the other cheek, which may result in continuing bullying uh, until you do something about it. It's a mixed bag. And I think it depends on the circumstances. Yeah, I do too. I just was curious of how you would answer that. I mean, I don't think there's any set rule about it. I think. Uh, but you lose yourself in any extended vengeance. I agree. It, but you also lose yourself if it's extended anger. You lose yourself if you're unable to forgive people. I mean, and forgiveness is hard. I find it's, it, you know, it's easier to love than it is to forgive in many ways, you know, but it's, it feels so wonderful when you finally can feel that 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 anger has gone and you know that you finally you go oh wow i'm over that does that have anything to do with exes of yours um no because you know what once i've loved someone i always love them that's the truth i love every person who i've ever loved and i still do even if i couldn't live with them i think it's more um it's finally understanding that sometimes the anger i would put towards something or someone else is actually misplaced that it's actually angry at myself for something 
And it takes sort of a little wisdom and time to process that, to realize maybe I should forgive myself and therefore then I'm going to not have that anger towards someone else. Uh, I, I uh, read excerpts from Paul Newman's book. Oh, I loved it. Yesterday, where he says, I know nothing. And I've been saying I know nothing <laughs> most of my life. So I was like, wow, he said I know nothing. And I <laughs> definitely know I know nothing. And I, I have obligated myself or said I would do something. Uh, two things, entertainment-wise, that are really off the wall. And I woke up yesterday morning having read, you know, I Know Nothing from Paul Newman. And I thought, you know, I know nothing. And these two off-the-wall things I'm doing, I, 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 it might not work. I, might not, I don't. And I was filled with trepidation. And I allowed myself to think more about it, what the trepidation was about and how you need courage, be yourself, be, be forward, be all the things we, we hear about. I thought, how tremulous is our ego and our ability to forgive ourselves and to forgive others. And it's, um, it's very, very, we, we're always on a balance. We're always on a teeter-totter. And uh, you never know when it's going to fall. I think that's true. And I think also it's learning how to trust. For me, I'm not going to speak for you, obviously. But for me, it's learning how to allow my vulnerability to actually... There was a period in my life where I was afraid to let down defenses. And I find now that the more I let down my defenses, the stronger I actually am um, in terms of, I'm talking about emotional vulnerability in a certain way of just being open. Maybe that's a better word, being open to whatever the experience is. And that means being open to failure. And it was a whole different thing in Hollywood at that time. You know, that old adage, if you don't fail, you're not learning anything. That's, that's true. That's very true. You've got to allow failure uh, because otherwise you're perfect and nobody's perfect. I mean, just everybody fails. A friend of mine went to their, um, had, a, had a failure and was talking with their um, uh, uncle who, had, who was dying. And uh, the uncle, in the, and he was com commiserating how he really, this thing was a bomb and it just wasn't working. And the uncle said, oh, oh, how I wish I had one more chance to fail. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's, that's so beautiful. Isn't that great? I mean, that yeah. really struck me. That Yeah, and that's, that's a great story. And that story needs to be repeated again and again because it has great import. I agree. So the concept of time is a fascinating thing. I have a cousin who is a member of the, I forget the name, but there's a club in the world. It's full of philosophers and academicians, and they study the concept of time, which is, sounds really wonderful to me. And she talks, she wrote her PhD on quantum physics and the theater and how one little thing different would change everything. Um, on a large basis, uh, you know, there's so much argument about, well, not argument, but I just don't understand the, the, uh, the principles, the right. scientific principles of time, no time, there is time, time, space, well, eternity. What I now know, and you only guess at, 
as you get older, when you're very young, you don't guess it at all. And the question becomes more and more strident as you get older. God, I'm 30. Wow. Oh, my God, I'm 60. So what you have to know is the lifetime is so, so brief. By the time you're out of school, you know, even just getting out of high school, you're still a child. You're presumably living at home and under the aegis of your parents. And then maybe you're 18 and you're of age. Now maybe you can start to think for yourself. And then most people, by the time they're 70, they're feeling their age and they don't do too much. And so what is that? 20 to 70, it's 50 years. We know that 50 years goes by. I mean, when you're 20, yeah. you're thinking, I can do this and I'm going right. to dream. I'm going to go. That's your first best. And by your 40, you're thinking, did I accomplish what I wanted or am I taking what I can now? And that's so pivotal. You've dreamt your dreams. I hate it that people retire and say, okay, now I'm retired. I'm going to do what I want. I'm thinking, yeah, I know. Well, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Something you didn't want for all those years. Yeah. You are so engaged in choosing things that keep you active and intellectually stimulated and joyously stimulated. Well, that's why where I think you can make the child seemingly brilliant and not necessarily then they're not necessarily any brighter than their friends by inculcating that curiosity. If you can be curious about the subject these kids are studying, if you can make algebra interesting, like, what do you mean X equals Y plus two? What, hmm. what is that? What is the mystery of that? And give it as a, a source of pleasure to, to uh, solve the mystery of anything. If you're just interested in the mystery of it all, how does that, what do you mean? French. Is there a word for, for yes, we, you know? So, oh, we means yes, and yes means we. Okay, I got it. And it's two different cultures. And, and 40 languages all have the same roots. Well, what do you mean? You mean if I learn, if I learn Latin, I can learn the roots of some? I, it's just opening up that mind. Yeah, absolutely. That curious mind, which you can, if you keep at it, retain through adulthood. The experience of speaking another language, it also does things. There's a new way of communicating. You, when I think in French, it's different than when I'm thinking in English, actually. There's something that, that I don't know exactly how to describe it, but when I could finally communicate well in another language, it opened up a whole new world for me. And actually, going back to something you asked me about with acting, you know, improvising in French and developing things in French made me a better actor because I got outside of my normal rut. I somehow felt freer to explore different facets of myself. I always felt I was trying to prove myself worthy. So when I went there, I stopped worrying about that and it freed me. And it was really, really powerful to me. I wanted to be sure that my son spoke more than one language, which he does. And I, I just think it's a great thing to experience. And if it's done early enough, the brain opens up. Yeah. So. What's next for you? You went into space. You made an album called Bill. Hey, what was the creative process on that like? When we started writing songs, 
uh, it started off over duck <laughs> with my dear friend. And and the musician said, uh, Dan Miller said, we should do an album. And uh, Rob said, we should do an album about Bill's experiences. So I said, okay, let's do an album about my experiences. And we had such a great experience that we sold that album. But in the meantime, we wrote like 25 songs. So when... Um, when Ben Folds called and said, Kid, have you got material? I said, God, I got 20 songs. He said, you know, it's the day, it's the week after Earth Day. I said, I got half a dozen songs about Earth. He said, well, we got this marvelous orchestra ready for you. Oh, that's incredible. But I mean, writing personal songs, it gives you the chance to reflect back on your life. Well, imagine having the opportunity. Who? Anybody in the world, anybody in this world has the opportunity to say, let's do songs about you're crossing a bridge or right. this horse that you love that, or whatever the subject is. Yep. So there are so many observations that you make minute observations. My mother said that and she didn't, you know, that's a song. I'd like to do more of that is what I'm Well... I look forward, Bill, to listening to that next album. I thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. It's been lovely having you on this session. Thank you. And uh, I look look forward to seeing you on the circuit. <laughs> Indeed. <on> the <laughs> okay. We got to have a meal together. It's wonderful. All right. Take care. Take care and give my best to Elizabeth. Do not tell Bill Shatner to act his age. It would be meaningless. The man doesn't, quote, age gracefully because he's too filled with life. He hurls himself into each day with a vigor that belies his 93 years. For Bill, it's keep working, keep exploring, keep asking questions, keep loving, and keep having fun. In other words, my friends, live long and prosper. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Investigates, and tune in next week for a new episode. <laughs>